welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by character actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor of SlashFilm.com and the host of the Slash Filmcast. And joining me today, as always, he is the man who played Hugo in the 1990 film Funny About Love, directed by Leonard Nimoy. Stephen Tobolowski, thanks for joining me today, sir. Man, that hurts. <laughs> that hurts. Now, now if you're going to say something like Hugo in Funny About Love, that that really hurts. That, that film... Uh, I was out of town working on a film in Thailand, and uh, so my wife, Annie, said that she would go to the cast and crew screening uh, of Funny About Love, which used to be called Crazy About Love, but they changed the title from Funny About Love to cra- from Crazy to Funny because they thought more people would go to see it if it was Funny About Love. They were wrong on both counts. But anyway, I was in Thailand and my wife went to see this movie and I called her up on the satellite phone. And back then, you know, you had to use equipment from the Vietnam War to call from Thailand and you had to call at two in the morning under like this palm tree in the jungle. That's when the satellite came over. So we all, everyone who wanted to call to America went out under this palm tree and we got this huge walkie-talkie and I called Annie and I said, how was Funny About Love? And she says, you're not going to like it. And I said, why not? And she said, because you've been entirely cut from the movie. (laughs) So it it was, David, it was like yesterday. You know, when I came out of, I I had a voiceover yesterday Uh and I was very happy. I got some good news. Uh, I, I I got another uh, job on Glee, so oh. they're writing. So yes, this was very good, and I called David Chin to tell him my happy news, and David was very bummed out because his car was in the shop. Yeah, I had taken my car in to get it looked at because uh, you know I was a friend of mine came to visit me recently. I drove her around a lot, and while I drove her around, uh, the check engine light went on, which by the way is like never. A good sign. Not the needs maintenance sign, which is fine, but the check engine light, it's like... <laughs> uh, I asked him, you know, the mechanic, I was like, what's the best case scenario here? And he said, uh, maybe your gas cap is loose, but then he started laughing at me. Um, so in any case, uh, yeah, I was very nervous about what would happen to the car. And so that's when you called me to give me the good news. And you were, and you were very bummed out. And, and I had a mechanic who dealt with the check engine light, and he actually suggested that the best thing to do for it was to actually unscrew the check engine light. <laughs> yes. He said that. <laughs> but I bring it up because I, I was thinking all along, here you are so depressed, but actually your car being in the shop could have protected you from the auto accident you would have had if you were driving that car that you never and, – and it – inspired me. See, David, you're a constant source of inspiration about the podcast today. And I just want to mention to everybody listening today that this story follows sequentially from last week's podcast. So if you want to get the flow of where we are in the story, you should listen to last week's. And also, episode 15, The Politics of Romance, wouldn't hurt either, because these stories all follow along. But I was thinking about something that one of my dear departed companions once said, that the reason you can't get a handle on life is because it's not a bucket. And he was right. It's not a bucket. And yes, he drank a lot. But the idea that life was not a bucket was more perfect than he ever imagined. 
there is no single thing to grab onto. For example, in Illinois, Beth and I were deep into our first year of school there, and we alternately felt successful and foolish. We were doing well, but we were still in school. We were making good grades, but who cares? We still wanted to be babes on Broadway, but we were nowhere. In fact, one of the pitches that the university used in their brochure was that the school was within a three-hour drive of Chicago, Indianapolis, or St. Louis. In other words, we were in the middle of nowhere. And the university was so down with that that they thought it was actually a selling point. In retrospect, we were very much victims of the yeah, but syndrome. The yeah, but is a mental disorder that's affected everyone I've known my entire life in varying degrees. Actors get it all the time. And here is an example of how it manifests itself. I'll give you kind of a case study. Someone says, what are you working on? You say, I'm playing Hamlet in a new production. They say, wow, that's great. You say, yeah, but we're performing in a parking garage. They say, well, that's interesting. And you say, yeah, but we're not getting paid. We even have to pay for parking. And then they say, yeah, well, at least you get to work on a great play. And you say, yeah, but the play's been cut to one act with five characters and we have to dress up like cats. They say, well, at least you get home in time to watch Ironsides. And you say, yeah, but I've seen all the episodes twice. The yeah, but is a way we have developed to diminish our own lives into footnotes, to demoralize, to trivialize, and to squander the greatest gift we've been given, and that is the joy of watching the sun rise for another day, even if it's only to have the opportunity to fail. You would think that there would be massive campaigns to eliminate the yeah buts, but there aren't. In fact, most people who use yeah buts are considered to be very measured and intelligent, and many go into politics. One of the oddities I lugged to Illinois was a gigantic white family Bible that I bought for myself when I was playing Jesus and Godspell. See, the musical was based on the book of Matthew, which, like most of the Bible, I had never read. And it wasn't for lack of interest. It was just too daunting. You know, the problem with most Bibles is that the font they use is way too tiny. And I, I always found it ironic that to read a book that was meant to give you vision, you had to go blind. But not so with this white Bible. It was huge, and it had pictures. And I would like to say that after I brought it to Illinois, I started reading it in earnest, but I didn't. In fact, I'm embarrassed to say I used it to hold up the window in the bedroom so we could get some fresh air. But I guess that is one step above using it as a doorstop. But occasionally... Occasionally, on a lazy Saturday or Sunday morning, I would pull that Bible out of the window and read some part of it to see if I could make sense of it. And I never could. Like life, I often found that I needed a handle. Every time I read some story or part of a story, the meaning kept shifting, or I would see something in the story that I never saw before, I could never get a grip on it. And back then, I thought all of the ironies and inconsistencies were a sign of age and a need for another rewrite. But now I understand that these incongruities were the calling cards of that book's greatness. And, and I'm going to give you a simple example. I was always partial to the stories of Joseph. It's easy to understand, right? It's very dramatic. Even Andrew Lloyd Webber found them very dramatic, wrote a musical. 
And for my religious and scholarly friends out there, I will cite my reference. This is from Genesis 39, 2, chapter 39, verse 2. The Hebrew word used to describe Joseph is not used to describe anybody else in the Bible, and that word is matzliach. It's a very unusual word, and it's often translated as meaning successful. Joseph is characterized as being successful. Not Moses, not Abraham, none of the prophets, just Joseph. So here is a guy, Joseph, who was spoiled by his father, who always tattled on his brothers. He was beaten up by them, almost murdered, sold into slavery, ended up in an Egyptian prison, and forgotten by those who promised to help him. Yeah, and I know it sounds like Hollywood. But Joseph is called successful. Why? Either the book is wrong, or it's using a set of priorities that we mere mortals are not used to thinking about. Now, the obvious key to Joseph's success that we can grab onto may be the fact that, if you recall, he was able to read dreams. He had ESP, or second sight, whatever you want to call it. He foretold a worldwide famine and saved Egypt and made the Pharaoh a very wealthy man. And not everybody is lucky enough to have ESP. So the question is, what is the yardstick being used to measure success? Certainly not peace of mind. It's certainly not an easy path. Is the Bible saying that unless you have superpowers, you're just flat out of luck? And, you know, in fact, this could explain the appeal of the show Heroes. Whenever you think about the Bible, if you, if you see it as a divine text or a spotty piece of history or, or even as a dangerous collection of children's stories, taken at face value, this narrative is a positive and powerful lesson that you can never really know if you're in a good or a bad situation. And the yardstick we should be using to measuring success may not be related to anything that our eyes can easily see. Now, I, I recognize by looking at myself that we're always constantly taking stock of our own prospects and alternately getting excited or depressed by how things are looking. But our vision is never 2020. Just when I thought I had some career going in Dallas, I'm off to Illinois. Just when you think you have Laura, the great Italian cook, as your neighbor, the door opens a crack and you discover you're living next to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Slight diversion. As a rule in life, if you want to feel thin, hang out with fat people. If you want to feel better about your prospects, talk to friends who are truly worse off than you. And throughout these first months in Illinois, we kept contact with our friend Alex Winslow in Dallas. At the end of the summer, she had called us late at night to tell us that her husband, Alan, had vanished. And then events separated us, and Beth and I left town, and we called regularly to see how she was doing, if there was any news, and over the weeks, the tears gave way to depression, and then they gave way to rumors that Alan had resurfaced somewhere. We didn't know where, but we felt he was alive. She told us that he had had misgivings about his life, that he had felt lost, he had gone crazy. Now, all of this seemed like science fiction to me because Alan was one of the sweetest, smartest guys I had ever known. But then I thought about Laura, and maybe I just did not have a peek behind Alan's door. Perhaps my vision was not 2020. There's almost 
nothing more powerful than a current of unhappiness. It can carry you far away. It can separate you from friends and family. It can even separate you from yourself. And eventually, we left Alex behind on a different shore and went on with the little dramas of our own lives. Classes seem to take on that artificial importance that classes usually do, right? Uh, We were instructed to do acting scenes on one foot to see how it would affect our performances. I was chastised by our teacher for not taking the exercises seriously. I said I wanted to, but unfortunately, I wasn't a flamingo. In modern dance class, our teacher was also a grad student on a scholarship. Her name was Blake Atherton. And all of us guys, <laughs> we were taking her class. We were up on that front row. And our interest was not really related to the love of dance, but Blake Atherton in her blue leotard. Doing warm-up stretches, she was the 1975 version of Viagra. I was now in rehearsal for one of the biggest parts in my life. Not the best, but the biggest. It was a new play written for the upcoming bicentennial called 76 Town Hall, or as we disrespectfully dubbed it, 76 Pound Turkey. It was three hours and 20 minutes long, and it ended with me delivering like a 40 or 45 minute monologue dressed up like Uncle Sam. Beard, top hat, the works. The play was a scathing criticism of how commercial America had become, And, of course, the playwright was secretly hoping that he might be the beneficiary of some of that disgusting commercialism. But he was safe. His play was to theater what Root Canal is to dentistry. My character in the play was called Narrator. Yeah, it's already a bad sign. But that didn't keep the other acting students in the department from being envious of me partially because the role was large. It was huge. And remember, this was the mid-70s, the decade of Deep Throat and the Devil and Miss Jones, where the nation was saying in one loud voice, size matters. It's also understandable for darker reasons. It all smacked of favoritism. I was brought in by Hob. I got to play the lead in Jumpers, which was a gigantic role. I got to play an 84-year-old man that delivered long and comprehensible monologues on physics to a stunned and occasionally sleeping audience. Then, in a move of almost De Niro-like transformation, I lose my hair in the shower, and I get cast in the largest part and the longest play ever written, and I got to deliver another set of huge, incomprehensible monologues. I was the school's go-to guy for unwatchable theater. I mentioned to Hob that I talked for an awful long time at the end of this play, and I had no idea what I was saying. Hob smiled and said not to worry. He was going to run a slideshow behind me during the speech with images of American iconography like Superman and Kent State and Gumby. When in doubt, cover the incomprehensible with the inexplicable, and people will just think you're smarter than they are. Oh, oh, and did I mention the play was going to be directed by Hobb? Ouch! With Hobb at the helm, I knew I was going over Niagara Falls in a thespian barrel. Survival was possible, but not likely. Beth was not cast in a play. The children's parts were being played by other children. 
and she started carrying her tattered notebook around with her again. She would jot down a word or a sentence, and sometimes I would look over her shoulder and, and see that she had doodled the picture of a woman holding a baby that had the head of a dog. And I was once again getting that Mr. Spoon feeling in my stomach and wondering, what was she doing? Oh, how quickly we mortals forget. The school brought in what they called a professional acting teacher to handle the new master class. His name was Ed K. Martin. He was a handsome middle-aged man who always wore blue jeans and flannel shirts. He was gay, but not just gay. He was mean gay, like on the Bravo channel. I had never encountered anything like it. He could cut you to ribbons with any of six lethal disparaging glances. And that was before he even opened his mouth to tell you you were hopeless and you needed to get out of acting and go home. Maybe committing suicide would be an option, except you were too worthless to waste the sleeping pills on. And this is just a question to the world at large. Why are all the abusive teachers reserved for actors, singers, and chefs? Why not biologists? I can just hear it. Oh, that is so not spirogyra. It's not even flattened dorsal ventrally. I mean, come on. Okay. Ed batted me around the head and shoulders a little, but he never went for the jugular. Primarily, I suspect, because I possessed a penis. But the women in our class were drawn and quartered, and sadly, it seemed the brunt of wrath fell on Beth. Every time she got on stage... Ed attacked her. He would mock every choice she made. He made fun of her voice. He made fun of the way she dressed. It was painful to watch, and she was quickly falling into the same position I had with Joan Potter. But Ed made the mistake many people did in dealing with Beth. He thought she was what she appeared to be. He thought she was some sort of sorority girl gone astray, but he had not looked behind her door. He didn't recognize that she was a first-class nihilist that had the ability to break him into pieces if he pushed her too far. I did what I could to protect Beth and support her outside of class, but to tell you the truth, I was very afraid for both of them if this continued and if there was a showdown. Ed wrote up evaluations for everyone in class, handed them out in envelopes. And you see, this is how teachers like Ed survive. They do their damage in sealed envelopes. Beth never opened hers. We went to Burger Chef that afternoon, and I offered to open her envelope, read it for her, and she snatched it out of my hand. She flicked it into the trash. She said, what's the point? The next class, she had to perform her final scene. It was something from a play that's not done anymore. The days and nights of B.B. Finstermaker. Beth was brilliant. She was passionate, she was tough, she was funny in a very offhanded way, and the class was silent, but I was screaming inside, that a girl, that a girl, that's my girl, you show him. And Ed sat there in silence. The class waited for his slights and his condescension, and they waited. The slights didn't come. Ed, who was so fast on the trigger to shoot down a dream, just kept sitting there and said nothing. And the tension built in the room, and finally he said, Why have you done this? And Beth said, Excuse me? Ed said, Why have you done this now? Why at the end of session? Your work was flawless. It was beautiful. If I was doing this production today, I would cast you in a second. Why did you wait to now to show me you could act? Beth gave Ed one of her looks, 
that I would refuse to translate, but if I was forced to, was kind of in the area of because you are such a fuck, something like that. Ed was silent again. He regained his composure. Choosing his words very carefully, he said, I want to apologize for what I wrote in your evaluation. I was wrong, and I'm sorry if it hurt you. Beth, who had been staring at Ed the entire time without changing her gaze, said very evenly, Oh, Ed, I never read that. I threw it in the trash at the burger chef. Ed again took a breath, and then he raised his arms to the ceiling and yelled, Bravo! Bravo to you! Ladies and gentlemen, this is the real actress. To act, you must be strong. To act, you must have autonomy. Beth, I salute you. And I salute Ed K. Martin. In that small classroom of a dozen students, he put truth before pride. And that takes a special sort of person. And on a side note, it made the entire day so much more pleasant. I was rehearsing 76 Town Hall on stage of the big 800-seat theater at the Cranert Center. And the time had come for me to actually get to work on the 45-minute monologue with Hobb. You see, the problem with writing a 45-minute monologue is that no one, except for one of the mothers I met at our preschool, ever really talks that much. It's unnatural. It's almost as long as an NBA game. It's exactly as long as a one-hour episode of Ironsides without the commercials. It's longer than it takes to barbecue a two-pound tri-tip on the grill. Even if it's written brilliantly, it means you have too much to say and you're in the wrong profession. Unfortunately, though, long monologues are usually a sign that you have absolutely nothing to say. Combine that with the scientific evidence that the average adult human brain has the attention span of 15 to 20 minutes the length of a typical Three Stooges episode. Then you have the making of an audience rebellion or a snore fest. And it's hard to learn something that long. You know, many actors over the years have asked me for pointers on how to memorize lines, and I have two general tips for anybody out there who's trying to get better at memorizing. Tip number one, break down whatever you're learning into the three acts thing a la Aristotle. Every speech, no matter how big or how small, has an introduction where the geography of ideas is laid out, a conflict, which is usually the subject of the speech, and a climax where there's some sort of resolution. You'll then have the internal landscape, and it'll make the ideas a lot easier to follow and consequently learn. Tip two, all language has meaning and order. If you think specifically about the meaning of what you're saying and the order in which it's revealed, you'll be able to memorize anything. The secret is specific thinking and not rote memorization. Besides long monologues being pointless and hard to learn, they're also very hard to rehearse because the other actors have nothing to do when you're working on a monologue and everybody loses focus. So as a result, what usually happens is a director will only rehearse your long monologue once or twice before you get into the run-through part of rehearsal And he gives everybody else the night off. Well, this is one of those nights. 
everybody else was gone, I was alone on stage performing the first half of my monologue for Hob and our stage manager when a crowd of students came in and sat at the back of the theater. They were all taking notes. Hob noticed them and called out, you know, it was showtime, okay, Tobo, let's take it from the top. And I started the speech again and got through about 10 minutes when Hob called out, Tobo, Tobo, hold it right there. Hobbs sidled out of the row he was sitting on and made the long walk to the stage. He came up to me in a very secretive tone, said, Tubbo, Jane and I are having people over this weekend for hamburgers. You eat meat, right? I nodded. Yeah, Hobb, I, I eat meat. And Hobbs said, how about Beth? She eat meat? I go, yeah, Hobb, she's, she's a meat eater. Meat eater too, yeah. Well, why don't the two of you come over for dinner? I said, sure. Come over about seven. Okay, okay. Then Hob turned and in a loud voice said, okay, once again from the top. Hob started to walk off the stage and then he stopped. Oh, wait, wait, Tobo, Tobo. Uh, yeah, Hob. Hob came back over to me and whispered, you and Beth haven't been to the house yet, have you? I said, uh, no, Hob, no. He said, well, then why don't you come over at 6.30 instead of at 7? We'll show you around. I said, sure, sure. Okay, once more from the top. I went through my entire speech and we took a break. I went over into my little corner and looked through my lines while drinking some hot tea. And one of the students from the back of the theater came up to me clutching her notebook. The girl introduced herself to me as Randy a directing major, Hobb had assigned them all to observe his directorial techniques. She wanted to know what Hobb told me on stage because after he talked to me, my entire performance changed. I told her I couldn't really discuss it because it was a deep part of my process. I didn't want to blow my subtext, but it did have to do with Americana as we know it, hamburgers and chili fries, that sort of thing. She nodded. She wrote some notes. She gave me my space. At the end of the evening, Hob came up to me and said, Tobo, I have a great idea. What do you think about starting your final monologue inside a giant cassava melon? And then you'll jump out and we'll start the slideshow. Pause. There are times in life when you have no idea what someone has just said to you. Uh, if you were to do a big pie graph, probably 80% of the time, it's because you did not hear what was said. Another 17% of the time, it's because you didn't grasp the nouns. Like if somebody said, are you going to eat it? And you didn't know if it meant your dessert or your debt. 2.9999999% of the time, confusion can occur when you are talking to Beth. And the remaining 0.0000001% of the time, it's because someone has told you that you're going to jump out of a giant cassava melon. It was a statistical anomaly, and my brain had short-circuited. I said, yeah, but I'm already dressed up like Uncle Sam. Aren't we mixing metaphors? He said, even better. I said, yeah, but how will people hear the beginning of the speech if I'm inside a cassava melon? Hobbs said, you'll be mic'd. I go, yeah, but we just staged my speech running all over the place. What will happen to the mic cord? He said, we'll get somebody on the crew to wrangle that cord. I go, yeah, but should Beth and I bring anything for Jane for dinner? 
No, 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 said Hob. Just bring yourselves. So they built a giant cassava melon, and they mounted it on train tracks. The front of it was covered with painted paper. Backstage, I would have dressers getting me into my Uncle Sam suit. I needed help because they discovered there wasn't enough time for me to properly change costumes, so we had to go for speed, and they remade the suit so it's held together with Velcro. I would start the speech offstage on one of those lavalier microphones while finishing the costume change. Then I would get into position inside of the melon. At the, <laughs> at the appropriate time, the melon would be rolled out on stage. I would jump through the paper like a football team making their appearance in a bowl game. Voila, Uncle Sam, hold for applause. Okay, that was the theory. Of course, we never really got to practice it completely because the Uncle Sam costume wasn't finished. Oh, and, and they never had the paper put up for me to jump through in rehearsal. Oh, yeah, and they never had the microphone and the cord. Dressing room opening night. Hob was giving us a pep talk. He told us we were going to show this audience something they had never seen before. And he smiled and said, good work. Let's go give them a show. And everybody clapped. Everybody started going to their places. And then Hob pointed at me, Tobo, one thing. I stopped. Uh, yeah, Hob. Hob said, I think we should change your makeup a little. I had a great idea. I felt a little bit of vomit in the back of my throat. I wasn't sick. It was just a Pavlovian response to Hob's ideas. I said, sure, what? Hob got this wicked smile on his face and said, have a seat. I sat and faced Hob. He grabbed my eyebrow pencil and spit into his hand. <sighs> and then he started smushing my eyebrow pencil in the concoction of Hopgoodian saliva and snot until the tip was slimy enough. And then he started drawing gigantic eyebrows on my head. I looked in the mirror. I was horrified. I was looking like a young, balding Brooke Shields. The stage manager called places. The audience was suitably entertained by the play for the first, oh, 90 seconds. Then they started getting restless. I'm backstage thinking, oh, dear, only three hours and 20 minutes to go. This could get ugly. On my first entrance, I could have sworn I heard gasps when they saw my makeup. There's nothing like bad makeup to make a sort of fatalism to send upon an audience. But just like life during wartime, they hardened themselves to the trials and privations they were forced to endure. They bore up bravely. Most of them stayed through intermission, which I consider one of the undocumented wonders of the modern world. As we were approaching the final monologue, I was rapidly throwing on my Uncle Sam outfit with the help of two customers. The white beard was hung over my ears like glasses. The sound man attached the mic to my spangled vest. My cue approached. I started my speech off stage. As it continued, I climbed into the giant cassava melon. Right on cue, the melon was wheeled onto the stage where it received perplexing silence. The moment came to leap onto the stage through the front of the melon when the unexpected occurred. My mic wrangler, who happened to be one of my freshman students in my class, happened to be a smoker. No one told her she shouldn't light up in the melon, but she did. She turned from her duties to get a smoke just as the cue came for me to leap. I jumped through the paper at the front of the melon, 
but she was lighting up instead of feeding me more microphone cord. The net result was the near strangulation and garroting of Uncle Sam in midair. The cord stopped me in mid-flight, and I crashed down onto the stage. The audience gasped, but it didn't stop there. The stage had been rebuilt at a downward slant toward the audience, so I started to roll as if I wiped out on a slope at Whistler. On my way down toward the front row, I heard the Velcro on my costume separating. Rip, 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 rip. I stopped rolling just before landing in a patron's lap. I looked around to assess the damage. My Uncle Sam hat was up by the melon. My white beard was hanging from one ear. My vest had come undone with my microphone. I stood up. My pants fell off. Then to top it all off, above my head, the slide started. Standing in my jockey shorts, with a dangling Uncle Sam beard, there was a sort of yin-yang quality to it. On the bad side, I had completely forgotten my entire speech, rendering this endless play literally without an end. On the good side, we finally got the audience's full attention. What many in the audience never realize is that while, while you feel you're anonymous there sitting in the dark, the actors on stage can actually see all of your faces lit up by the stage lights. And now I was seeing several hundred expressions frozen in horror and wonder, and some with amusement, as slides of Kent State, Monticello, and Mickey Mouse started changing above me. I finally got my wits together, and I yelled up to the control booth, Hey! You could just turn off those slides. Yeah, just turn them off. They did. I gave the booth a thumbs up. Thank you. I picked up my fallen mic. I blew on it. It was still on. So I started walking aimlessly around the stage in my underwear with huge painted eyebrows speaking to the audience. I said, wow, that was something. And you know what? I have no idea what my last speech is. It's supposed to end this play, but here I am. Wow. I guess none of us knew we were going to see anything like this tonight. I sure didn't. The audience was still in shock. I continued. Before the start of the play tonight, Dr. Hopgood, Hob, our director, gave us a pep talk and told us to go show them something they had never seen before. We have succeeded beyond our wildest dreams. When I woke up this morning, I had pancakes. I had no idea my day was going to end like this, and neither did you. And that's the great thing about theater. You just never know, do you? It's all about now. And here we are. For better or worse, this is what we've got tonight. And I yelled up to the booth, You could start up the slides again. The play ended. We took a bow. Afterwards, I climbed up the fire ladder backstage a couple hundred feet into the flies and sat there. I was too humiliated to go to the dressing room and change. I waited up in the darkness for about 20 minutes, and then I climbed down. Mercifully, the dressing room was empty. I looked at my gigantic smeared eyebrows in the mirror. I washed my face. I got dressed. I snuck out of the Cranard Center. On my way down the steps, there were two audience members discussing the play. The conversation went something like this. Man, what do you think of that play? The other guy says, I don't know. What do you think about the guy with the brows? 
They just silently shook their heads. I got home and opened up a rolling rock or three and snuggled into bed, turned on the TV. It was the late weather report. A series of severe fronts were heading into the Urbana area. I didn't care. My mind was still numb. My cheeks burned with failure. I can look back now and think about how close the handle was to some sort of comfort that night. It was right there in the window, letting in the cold night air, that big white family Bible, right where I'd left it off with the story of Joseph and the meaning of success. I didn't know this then, but the name Joseph comes from three Hebrew letters, a Yud, a Samoth, and a Fe, and together those letters mean to carry on, to do again, to continue. And maybe a highly underrated element of success is Yosef, the ability to keep going. I went back to class the next day and faced my smiling schoolmates, and I played Uncle Sam again that next night, without incident, if you don't count the toxic boredom. I never realized I had achieved one of the biggest markers on the yardstick of success, making it to tomorrow. That was Without a Handle, a series of stories told by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, I just want people and yourself to know that uh, I actually ended up uh, paying a few hundred dollars, but my car, <laughs> my car that's will good. live to see another day. So that's, ah, that uh, is so good to know. And I want the audience to also know that I did uh, dismantle my engine check light on, and uh, I'm still driving it. <laughs> yeah. Well played, sir. Well played. Well, Stephen, tell people how they can reach you this week if they'd like to couple great ways. Uh, you could send me an email to stephentobolowski at gmail.com. And I will spell, because the spelling is so important in an email, it's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T-O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y at gmail.com. And also, David, I am on Twitter at twitter.com slash Tobolowski. Well said, sir. Well said. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky, and you can also email me at slash filmcast at gmail.com. We also want to give back a big thanks to slash film.com for hosting the Tobolowski files and making it possible. And uh, yeah, that's going to take us to the end of this week's episode of the Tobolowski files. I also want to mention again the Tobolowski testimonies. Uh, because people email in some pretty incredible stories uh, and some pretty incredible reactions to the Tobolowski files. If you want to read some of those, go to tobolowski.tumblr.com. That's tobolowski.tumblr.com. And if you want to email them in, feel free to email Stephen at stephentobolowski at gmail.com. So thanks so much for listening, guys. Tune in next week for another series of stories by Stephen Tobolowski. We'll see you guys later. Bye-bye. <laughs> 